Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I am delighted to be here with all of you, and I'm particularly delighted to be here with our guest, um, Evan Thomas. We're going to talk about a book that Evan wrote about uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who um, I know a little bit about because I've read the book. Uh, it's called First. So let's, um, let's go back to the beginning on the Lazy Bee Ranch. So um, one of my takeaways from that uh, reading about that time for her um, that I thought you wove very clearly through the book was she learned to be very self-sufficient. I'm interested, yeah. you know, going back to her childhood, what is it, what else other than the self-sufficiency did you see that well, helped bring her along? The self-sufficiency is, is, is huge and probably the single biggest thing, but uh, there are more subtle things. Her mother and father were a loving couple, but her father was, could be overbearing, uh, especially when I had a drink in the evening. And her mother, who was a wonderful person, very difficult life out on this ranch, always insisted on wearing a skirt and, and nice shoes to remember herself, to remember that she was, that civilization existed even if she wasn't in the middle of it. She subscribed to Vogue. I mean, she did little things to make her remember that she wasn't living on this rather bleak ranch. She loved her husband. There was a deep physical attraction between them. You can actually see it in the photographs. But he could be hard on her. And Sandra watched this interaction, and Sandra learned a very important lesson. Don't take the bait. Her father would bait her mother, and her mother would not take the bait. And this is it's not to say that the mother's passive. It's not, the message is not roll over and just be passive. It's knowing when to fight and when not to fight. But it's also not getting into stupid, egotistical arguments all through her career. Sandra Day O'Connor was confronted mostly by men who wanted to bait her and push her around and in the state legislature were drunk half the time. Uh, and she learned not to get into stupid fights, but to walk away from them. Now, sometimes it was hard. She was once, one of her assistants found her crying in the bathroom. She was human. She cried. Uh, she cried at funerals and she cried at weddings and, and she was actually quite an emotional person person in many ways, but she didn't show those tears in public, and she didn't show them to the men who were trying to get her goat. In fact, in the state legislature, she had, she had a slight, when she was stressed, a slight involuntary body shake when she was stressed. And uh, Alfredo Gutierrez, the Democratic leader, their opposite, would say to his colleagues, watch, I'm going to make her twitch. And they would, <laughs> they would try to make her twitch. And that's, you know... Uh, and, but she also learned at the right moment when to stand up. I'll tell you one story about this I love. Her chief nemesis was a guy named Goodwin, who was the House Appropriations Subcommittee chairman. And Goodwin was a drunk, a ten by, drunk by 10 a.m. drunk. He used to come from the bar to the state legislature. And she finally called him on his drinking. She had to. And he looked at her and he said, if you were a man, I'd punch you in the nose. And she answered, if you were a man, you could. <laughs> so sometimes you do have to stand up, but you pick your shots, and she learned that. 
She went to Stanford in 1946. Think about this. She was 16. She went to Stanford in 1946. Stanford was co-ed, right? Um, but there were three times as many. It was um, the, after the war, right? So Stanford, like all universities in this country, were full of GIs, right, going to college on the GI Bill. So you say that the ratio was three to one. And she succeeded at Stanford. So there must have been something at Stanford um, that she learned about getting along and succeeding with the majority of men. Well, a couple of details. One is on the very first night that she was there, this 16-year-old girl goes to a dance. And this is an age when women were supposed to stand back. She walks up to the cutest guy she can find and says, will you dance with me? Good for her. Uh, you know, she just goes for it right away. His name was Andy Campbell. OC and I interviewed him. He's still in love with her. <laughs> I mean, I'm being literal. He, he, he went to see her, and uh, <laughs> she would say, uh, she'd see, see, Andy would say, this is Andy, age 90, uh, talking to her, would say, oh, Sandra, I just love you. And she would say, don't we have nice families? <laughs> That's too funny. Uh, so that was one thing. But the other bigger thing that she learned, I think, was she took a course called Western Civilization. And it's no longer taught because it's considered to be a little politically incorrect. It was all about the patriarchy and hegemony and all that, in, in modern terms. But in those times, it, it was kind of a triumph of democracy course. And it gave her a deep sense of the importance of the rule of law, how incredibly important that is to civilization and, and to a country getting on. That, that was sort of at the heart of that course. And she had a teacher there who also gave her a sense that you can make your own destiny. He, he spoke in kind of grand terms that sound a little hokey, but to a 17, 18 year old girl were unbelievably, pulsingly important about you can shape your own destiny. And he was a, he was a pro, proto-feminist, I guess you would say. This is in this age, it's still male dominated. He was men and women alike can shape their own destiny and should, and she took that to heart. Then she went to Stanford Law School where Little known fact, perhaps, she dated Chief Justice Rehnquist, who she was then on the... Not just dated. With. Well, I, you say that he proposed to her. One of our finds here, we love this, was uh, O.C. and I, when we started this project, we were given access to her papers. And we're, so we're in the Library of Congress, and we're going, where are the love letters? You know, because there was nothing between... We were looking for love letters between her and her husband, John, who she met in law school, and so then we were over in her chambers, and her a secretary took us into a giant storage room, which had, among other things, her clothes, all sorts of things. And there was a box marked correspondence. And we said, well, what's that? The love letters. But it wasn't just the love letters between John. It was, it, there were 14, we're going through this. This is what every historian dreams of. 14 love letters, and I realize it's Bill Rehnquist. Let me step back for a second. William Rehnquist became the Chief Justice of the United States and was on the Supreme Court at the same time as Sandra Day O'Connor. They were fellow justices together. They told no one, not even their own families, that when they were in law school, Bill Rehnquist proposed marriage to Sandy, Sandy, Sandy Day, Sandy, will you marry me, is in the letter. And I gave this little yelp, <laughs> a find. <laughs> a find. Uh, and they didn't tell anybody because it would be just too weird and awkward to explain. I mean, here we are in the Supreme Court together, and the Chief Justice, when this is 30 years ago, proposed to me. They, so they let it be known that they went out on some dates together. They went to a few movies together, was a story they told. And even that, uh, 
uh, Justice Blackman, who was uh, one of the fellow justices, sat next to Justice Rehnquist on the court. And when Sandra came on the bench, uh, Blackman turned to Rehnquist and he said, now, no fooling around. Too funny. Too funny. So she went to, she did meet her husband at um, Stanford Law School. And um, then when she graduated, she went to look for a job. And we all know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg couldn't get a job at a law firm in New York. And Sandra Day O'Connor could not get a job with a law firm in California. She interviewed at Gibson Dunn, and uh, they asked her if she could type, right? Because the answer was middling. <laughs> she couldn't even get a job as a secretary. So I told um, Evan that um, when I started at Sullivan and Cromwell in 1982, so you'd say, what a difference 32 years makes, right? Because um, in 1950, she couldn't even get interviewed. When I started at Sullivan and Cromwell in 1982, I had, in fact, taken typing in high school, because that is what you did in suburban high schools. And um, so I asked if I could have a typewriter, because it was much easier for me to type, and I was much better at it and much faster than writing things out longhand and then giving them to my secretary or to the word processing department to type. And they said no. They said, no, we don't give typewriters to women lawyers because we're worried that people will think that they're secretaries. So maybe not that much actually changed in those 32 years. Um, so she uh, uh, worked for the San Mateo District Attorney. Then her husband was in the Korean War. She worked in Germany. They moved back to Phoenix, where she hung out a shingle because he, he gets he was. Her, his grades were not as good. He was law review, but her, she, he was not the performer that she was. He gets a job at the fancy law firm at the top of the bank building. She has to hang a shingle in a downscale uh, shopping mall. Uh, Two-person two firm taking any business that walks in the door. And then she took a break, right? So this is, this is one of the things that I thought was so interesting. She had three kids, three boys. They moved to Paradise Valley, which was, you know, suburban Phoenix. And she took five years off, during which time she was, um, among other things, the president of the Junior League of Phoenix. One of the things that I took away from that time is that she did a lot of networking. She and John were very social. They were involved in the local Republican Party. They became friendly with Barry Goldwater, who, as we know, then ran for president. She met people who later introduced her to Chief Justice Berger. Um, what else? She was a relentless networker. The word networking didn't exist in 1957, 58, so I don't think she necessarily thought of it in those terms. You've been educated to network. You're being educated to network. I don't think it, she was that conscious of it, maybe, but she sure did it uh, all the time uh, because she was vivacious and she was good at people, and she and her husband were a team, a power couple. There was That term didn't exist either in 1965, but they were a power couple. Phoenix was a kind of hierarchical city uh, where the bankers and lawyers got together to run things, and, and they did. So she then went back to work. She went into the state um, legislature. And um, as Evan was saying, that was quite the interesting experience. She wound up as the majority leader in the, um, the, in the state senate, the first woman. First ever. First woman ever to be the majority leader of the state senate. Of a state senate. Any just, state senate. Not just anywhere. Arizona, but any state senate. Um, and she was a very pragmatic legislator, which um, I thought, looking back on the book, because I didn't understand it as much at the time, um, 
was kind of an indication of how she would approach the court. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the pragmatism I thought was perhaps most evident in the um, Equal Rights Amendment. So you know what the Equal Rights Amendment is, the ERA, was a huge big deal back in the 60s and 70s. Basically, it would amend the Constitution to give women equal rights. And it was almost non-controversial at the very beginning. And she introduced it in the legislature. Then came the backlash, a woman named Phyllis Shafley and a right-wing backlash against the ERA, this idea that uh, women are going to get drafted. Uh, it just it would shake the whole balance. And because she is a pragmatist, even though she introduced the ERA into the legislature, she quietly let it die in committee. Why? And infuriated the ardent advocates who thought that she was selling out and doing it to get a judgeship from Barry Goldwater and imputed all sorts of ambitious motives to her for doing this. She did it because she knew it didn't have the votes to pass. Why fight a battle that you're going to lose and make everybody mad when, as it happened, she then methodically started changing every law in the state of Arizona that was gender biased, every single one, to no longer be, to, to be gender neutral. And she was able to do it that way, very practical approach Got a very practical outcome now. It doesn't affect anybody outside of Arizona, but if you're a woman in Arizona, so instead of going for the shooting for the moon and failing and making herself feel good and making everybody else feel virtuous as they lost, she practically goes about doing things that will, less grand, but very significant in the state of Arizona, bit by bit, piece by piece, until she got it done. So she went from the state legislature in Arizona to the courts in Arizona, and um, first the trial level court and then the appeals court. And now it's 1980, and great story. Ronald Reagan is behind in the polls with women. So he's ahead with men, but behind with ten, women. 10 points in the swing state of Illinois. And he decides with his advisors that um, one of the ways he's going to address this is he's going to announce that he will appoint a woman to one of the first vacancies during, the, during his term as president on the Supreme Court. He wins, and, um, and Potter Stewart of, you know, you know pornography when you see it fame, um, decides to retire. And um, there are these young whippersnappers at the Justice Department like Ken Starr who um, want to take this as the opportunity to put Bob Bork on the court, which they had the opportunity a few years later, didn't work out so well for them or for, um, for Professor Bork. But, um, so they tried to persuade William French Smith, who was the attorney general, that Reagan hadn't really said that he was going to put a woman on the court. He had just said that he would consider putting a woman on the court. But President Reagan said no. He had promised the American public that he was going to put a woman on the court. And who was the best conservative woman out there. Sandra Day O'Connor was one of the very few Republican women judges at that time. Very, I think uh, it's either six out of 800 or eight out of 600, I forget which, but I mean a tiny, they just weren't women federal judges. They just, in 1980, hadn't started yet. So she, now, she had met, as you say in the book, Justice Berger at that point in time. She obviously knew Networking. Justice Rehnquist, right, back to the, so she quickly rose to the top of the list. And then 
Think back to last summer, team, and what happened with the Kavanaugh hearings. Nobody looks fondly on that period of time in American history. Sandra Day O'Connor was approved by the Senate 99-0. And um, the only reason it wasn't 100-0 was because someone wasn't Max there. Max Baucus was away. Was away, okay. So um, remember, this is the first woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court. So it wasn't that the senators didn't have concerns. So how did she do it? Well, they did. The conservative right, uh, Jesse Helms and some others, were concerned because as a state legislator, she had voted to decriminalize abortion. And that was a big red flag, of course, to the uh, right to life conservatives who were just coming on strong in Congress in 1980. That was the right to life movement was really gathering political steam. And so it was a little bit of a crisis when this vote came out, but she successfully disarmed it by going personally to each of these senators and, and, and charming them. And also very carefully not giving away too much about what she might do on this issue. She never said one way or the other, but she managed to to neutralize them, uh, partly by her personal charm, by being this relatable uh, uh, woman from, from, a, from a ranch. And the, so the right wing backed off. They later had some buyer's remorse because it turned out that Sandra Day O'Connor was the woman who preserved a woman's right to, a constitutional right to an abortion. She was the swing vote for the next 25 years. So let's start with her relationships with her colleagues. We know that she dated Rehnquist. Uh, that notwithstanding, the court was a pretty chilly place when she arrived. She used the word cold. I mean, cold marble. But also the justices, just because they all have to serve together doesn't mean they get along. They're appointed by different justices. And she was surprised to find the first time she went to lunch, and the justices have lunch every week, only four other justices showed up. The other four of the eight, didn't even show up. Why? They didn't trust each other completely because a book had just come out called The Brethren, an expose of the Supreme Court, the first ever expose of the Supreme Court, and these justices weren't sure who the leaker was, so they didn't trust each other. And they were, they communicate, these justices don't talk that, weirdly don't talk that much. They communicate by memo with each other. Even in conference, they don't talk that much. And she found this to be kind of cold and off-putting. And one of her causes was, this sounds prosaic, but it's important, was to get other justices to come to lunch. She would show up in their chambers and say, we're going to lunch. And they resisted it. By the late 90s, she had everybody coming to lunch. And Justice Thomas told me that she was the glue, the glue of the court. She was political, small p political. She learned how to get along with others. And, and this is very significant because she was the decisive vote. She's the swing vote on the court. And she often had to put together majorities. Five to four, you know, the nine votes, five to four you win. 330 times in 24 years, she is the fifth vote. That's a lot of power. That's what preserved abortion rights and affirmative action, the two biggies. She was very big on religious freedom, which is another aspect of the court. She was, this book review, said that she was the most consequential woman in American history. And you can make a case for that. So let's talk about a few of the cases that were really important early on um, in her term. So it's 1982. There's a case called um, the Mississippi University for Women versus Hogan. 
Hogan's a man. He wanted to go to nursing school. The only state nursing school in Mississippi is at the Mississippi University for Women, and they don't admit men to the nursing program. So this case went up to the Supreme Court, and Justice O'Connor wrote, wrote the, uh, the majority opinion. Uh, she had to, her best friend on the court, who had really welcomed her, and very this courtly gentleman, Lewis Powell, uh, she had to cross her best friend to do this. He was a courtly gentleman. He liked women's schools. His, his daughters and his wife had gone to women's schools for gentlewomen in Virginia. And so he, he had to, she had to break his heart on this case, but she did it. And the important note, by pointing out that men can be discriminated against as well as women, that's an important bridge to, to, to dealing with laws that discriminate against women. And that's what they did in this case. It was the facts, it was limited to the facts in this case, but it had a broader meaning. In fact, this is a funny story, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Marty, who was a tax lawyer, uh, came home the, the night that the decision was made and Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time was a court of appeals judge, the next rung, rung down. And uh, Marty Ginsburg said to Ruth, when he looked at Sandra Day O'Connor's opinion, he said, Ruth, did you write this opinion? Right. Same strategy. So one of her clerks de described her as an unfeminist feminist. An unfeminist feminist. Um, so now let's talk about abortion. So the first abortion case that um, came to the court um, shortly after she was appointed was um, just background, 1970, Roe versus Wade. Um, Justice Blackmun wrote the decision. It was focused on um, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, and had different um, rules, basically, for how the um, states could interfere with a woman's right to choose based on the stage of pregnancy. Um, you paint a picture of Justice O'Connor not thinking much of that opinion. She thought that judges got into trouble once they started to be scientific experts or medical experts. The judges needed not to get in that arena. And, and Justice Blackman got there. He had been, just in Roe v. Wade, the famous case, 1973, written by Justice Blackman. He had been general counsel at the Mayo Clinic. And he came, he, he spent a summer researching in the library of the Mayo Clinic and came at it from a kind of a medical doctor's point of view, partly to protect doctors who were being criminally charged for, not to protect women so much, but to protect the doctors who are performing the abortions. And she thought that was not a viable way of going forward. I've mixed terms here. There was, the whole issue was viability. When is a fetus viable? If it, once a fetus is viable, that it can live outside the womb with some help, the state then has some rights in protecting the life of the fetus. Justice O'Connor thought that this was not a tenable, she thought it was on a collision with itself because it was medical science proceeded fetuses were going to become viable earlier. So the trimester system was, was not going to work. And Justice Blackman was upset. He thought that she was actually going to vote against Roe v. Wade and throw the whole thing out. He was wrong about that. She became the one to preserve Roe v. Wade, but she did it a different way with something called the undue burden standard. She came up with a different way of looking at it, which was the state cannot impose an undue burden on a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. Now, what does undue burden mean? That's a kind of a squishy term, and the court spent the next 30 years litigating. There's, in fact, they're still, still litigating. Litigation. They're still litigating. But this is classic Justice O'Connor, was to try to find a middle road 
something that keeps the conversation going. It's not the last word. There are going to be more cases. People like to think of the Supreme Court as the last word. She didn't really think of it that way. She thought of it more as a branch of the government that's engaged with other branches of government working through difficult societal issues like abortion, like affirmative action, like religious freedom. Let the conversation go on. And that's, that was her approach. It was very pragmatic. It was disappointing to the purists, of course, uh, on both sides. She managed to, to alienate both the right and the left. But her willingness to do that, to find a compromise, to find a middle road, actually ended up preserving uh, uh, abortion rights as long as it's still on the books. In fact, this is going to be, this is coming, you have something to look forward to. It's going to be litigated again. Right. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away. No. Uh, so let's spend a minute on affirmative action, another topic that continues to come to the Supreme Court and hasn't gone away. Uh, since Justice O'Connor joined the court. During uh, Justice O'Connor's tenure, two cases from the University of Michigan came to um, the Supreme Court, one involving affirmative action at the University of Michigan undergraduate program and one involving affirmative action at the University of Michigan Law School. So these were um, very big decisions for her. Huge decisions, and this has been going, the issue kept coming, this is one of these issues that always comes back because it's such a difficult issue. By the time Grutter and Gratz, these two cases, come to the court in uh, 2001, 2002, the liberals on the court like all affirmative action. The conservatives on the court like no affirmative action. They think that uh, the Constitution should be colorblind. She's in the middle. She's the, the, the proverbial fifth boat, vote. And she's looking for, and she's, she's not sure. I mean, she was not somebody who said, oh, I know exactly what I wanted. She wasn't sure what she thought of this. It's a hard issue, but she got into the facts, as she often did, and a couple of things really struck her. There was a brief written by the military, and it made the point that in the officer corps, the military's officer corps, it has to look like America. The officer corps especially has to look like America. It has to have whites and blacks and, and, and all colors, and, and that requires affirmative action to do that. It doesn't happen automatically. And she thought, about, she thought of law schools as places to train leaders. And she's not wrong about that. I believe that one quarter of the U.S. Senate has a law degree. Uh, historically, the founding fathers, most of them were lawyers. Uh, and so she saw law school as a training ground for leaders. And she knew from looking at the numbers that if they did it straight on the numbers, you were going to have tiny percentage of minorities at, at, at law schools. You needed affirmative action to, to, get, to get the numbers. That was just a raw truth. That was just a factual truth. And so she voted and decisively voted to preserve affirmative action uh, as long as it's limited. You know, you have to have some, it has to have a purpose for diversity, and diversity has to have a meaning. Uh, it's better if it's time limited. Uh, she said, maybe we'll do this for another 25 years. She told me personally, and maybe I was wrong about that. <laughs> 13 years in, she said, I don't know, maybe I got that number wrong. The point is she's trying to limit it. She realizes it's not a great solution. It's an awkward solution to a big problem. But she was willing to take on these big problems and look for practical ways to solve them. So she's the first woman. Ruth Bader Ginsburg joins her in 1993. 
um, Sonia Sotomayor in 2009 and Elena Kagan in 2010. Um, so um, I think they all, you report in the book, they all give her a lot of credit. They sure do, yeah. They, uh, they, were, they were wonderful about it. I mean, they, they, she was a model to them. Uh, they, she opened the door, uh, you know, and she was a good bridge figure because she wasn't an activist. Ginsburg is an activist. And, uh, you know, for the first woman, it really was better to have a, somebody who was practical, who was sensitive to, 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 to be able to stand up to males, but not necessarily to confront them. I thought I would ask, what did you learn about her that we don't know about her from her public persona? Well, she is a little bit. We, I would like to say everybody should be like Justice O'Connor. You can't. She's unique. Uh, you know, who, who can do really what she did? One of the ways she did it was there was no downtime for her ever. The, the, the expression in the Arizona legislature is there's no Miller time uh, for Sandra. Uh, and she was, she was, but she was not a relentless worker. She was made sure to go to museums. She would tell your clerks, have dinner parties. Don't be too busy to take care of people. Don't be too proud to take care of people. Have a full life, but don't just have a working life. You'll do better in your work. And she cared about work. She was work worth doing was something that she really cared about. But you, you, you need to have a full life too. Well, the one thing she didn't do was watch TV mindlessly on the couch. And, and this is, she was sort of pre the video, the, the, the internet age. Uh, she didn't, she would not have wasted any time on that. No Facebook for Sandra Day O'Connor. All right, well, I would like to thank all of you for coming and thank you, Evan, for spending time with us. And I hope that you will all read this because it really is a great testament to a great American. Thank you all. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on March 18th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.